Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I'm going to continue discussing how to include non-humans in history. Last episode, I talked about attempts to include animals and uh, special kinds of animals like pets into the study of the history that I've been going over for the past couple months. And I talked about how the same moves that people have used to include animals and pets into history pushes us into including other kinds of actors as well. Uh, Objects, uh, environmental processes, geological processes. And I say that this kind of makes the way that we look at history a little bit weirder because the people who are doing history are no longer just people. We have to understand history as this process not just of, you know, people having ideas and making government and working against the environment and farming and inventing, but also of a bunch of other kinds of inputs like diseases and the particular qualities of animals and the chemical outputs of particular industrial processes. We're going to be continuing that story today in looking at the historical role of pollution. And I think that the way that I'm going to try to talk about this is by looking at the concept of pollution itself. So, in short, there's two different ways that we can look at this. The first is that the idea of pollution really started in England in the 19th century when massive industrialization and urbanization made pollution really palpable. Pollution was a new concept for a new thing. Implicitly in this view, before the 19th century, humans lived in a very different relationship with their environment, one that had less uh, visibly destructive effects. The second view is the opposite view, that human relationship with the environment has always led to there being various kinds of changes and effects that people have appreciated. Now, these effects have not usually been the kind of pollution that we recognize today as pollution. People might consider, for example, the presence of particular kinds of people to be a pollution, uh, particular kinds of food, or uh, particular biological processes that we no longer think exist, like miasma, to be a kind of pollution. The distinctive thing in the 19th century, then, is that the idea of pollution changes to be something more akin to the idea of pollution that we see today, negative externalities from domestic and industrial uh, production and consumption that uh, upset the balance, and I have invisible scare quotes here, of the natural world. So we're going to talk about both of those views uh, and then discuss a little bit about what uh, looking at history in this way does for this story of including non-humans in traditional historical narratives. So let's first talk about this idea that pollution, the idea of pollution, started in the 19th century. This hinges on the fact that in the 19th century, in cities in Britain, you have a new kind of problem. Um, And that is that the widespread industrialization fueled by coal led to a ton of deleterious changes in the environment that were immediately noticeable. 
Um, you should imagine those factories of Manchester and Birmingham, and even the salt factories in London, and the and the potteries and the chimneys of almost every single house in a city would be blowing out black coal smoke. And this coal smoke was really ugly, and it contained a lot of things that we identify now as pollutants. Uh, it was 20% sulfur and volatile chemicals and other icky stuff that got into the air, so it not only released carbon dioxide, which we're aware of, but sulfur dioxide, which led to acid rain. And this led to direct changes in people's everyday environments. The coal smoke clung to buildings. The white facades of the Leeds Town Hall had been so blackened by generations of coal soot that when they were finally cleaned in the 1970s, people thought that they were painting it white. Another example of this is the peppered moth, which is used in this example by evolutionary biologists of the intense speed of evolution when environmental situations changed. The pepper moth is a little moth that lives in forests and hides on white trees. But during the Industrial Revolution, there was so much coal smoke that the white trees became black, and all of those white moths with little tiny speckles went from being invisible to being very visible. And so, in a couple generations, they evolved turning from white to black. Nowadays, when the air is much cleaner, they've evolved back from black to white. Another really, really palpable change in the cities was the advance of what we now know as acid rain. Acid rain was discovered in the 1850s by a guy named Robert Angus Smith, uh, who was actually the scientist in charge of a new government agency called the Alkali Board that had as its mission the reduction in the industrial production of alkalis. One of the first, if not the first, government inspectorate that is specifically tasked with clearing out pollution. Well, the thing is, is that when you burn coal, sulfur dioxide goes out into the air, and in the air it combines with water, which turns into sulfurous acid, which then rains from the sky and hangs in icky mists in the city. And this led to there being massive destruction of the stonework of British cities, particularly London. One of the most striking examples is the Palaces of Westminster, which might be one of the most famous architectural landmarks of Britain. You might know it as the Houses of Parliament. Well, it, they started getting built uh, after uh, the Houses of Parliament burnt down in 1834, and while they were still being built, the stone that people were using to build them was degrading under the acid rain. Another famous London landmark that Cleopatra's Needle, this massive obelisk that was uh, first erected by the pharaoh Tutmosis in, I think, 1450 BC, was shipped over to London in the middle of the 19th century. And it took years, and people died, and when it arrived in London, everybody was incredibly excited. Here was a monument that explicitly served as a connection between the new British Empire and the first empire on earth, 
that of Egypt. This massive piece of stonework that had lasted for thousands of years had, through dint of British organization and engineering and pluck, moved to the new center of empire, to London. Well, that story being told, it was very embarrassing when, after the weight of acid rain, the monument, which had lasted for thousands of years, started to crumble in just a couple years, so much so that people discussed, uh, you know, coating it in a special kind of preservative so that the acid rain wouldn't get it anymore. Similarly, we shouldn't discount the effect that all of this had on people's health. I mean, if you go to a country in which there is uh, quite a lot of pollution, I lived in South Korea for a while, and uh, every season we would get the yellow dust blowing over from China, and it would feel really gross whenever you got outside. It was this mixture of sand from the Gobi Desert and uh, pollution from the Chinese factories, and your eyes would itch and your skin would burn. All my friends who live in Beijing um, always talk on their Facebook feed about the pollution levels, the same way that people in California discuss uh, the drought. Um, similarly, on my trip to Hanoi, uh, one of the biggest things that really marked my daily life was the experience of pollution. You go outside, and because there are a lot of scooters going around which don't have catalytic converters, the thing in modern cars uh, that allows them to run with far less pollution, well, the skin burns, your eyes burn, you cough, you feel worse. And this was much, much much more accentuated in urban Britain in the 19th century. Coal smoke was everywhere. People were always coughing. It was hard to be outside. And because of this, in you know what is really, really common British practice, there was the rise of a bunch of civil society organizations who were devoted to figuring out ways of cleaning up the city. Uh, in very 19th century fashion, they had exhibitions and magazines, and they spawned a bunch of similar kinds of organizations that tried to push for a clearing up of the coal smog in British cities. Now, one of the ways that they proposed to do this was to switch people to new kinds of energy. Um, one alternative was anthractite coal, which is a coal with a much lower sulfur content. Uh, and burning it is a little bit harder, but it leads to a lot less of the volatile, you know, smoke that makes uh, uh, bitumous coal so gross. Um, another uh, set of uh, alternatives was the switch from coal to electricity, uh, which had the problem of how to get the electricity. In Britain, it would be a coal plant, so all you would be doing was to be shifting the site of pollution from the city to some uh, uh, coal plant somewhere. Uh, and another uh, example of an alternative was the promise of gasoline, because gasoline, petrol, burned a lot cleaner than coal did. And you also get civil society organizations that uh, try to tackle the problem from the other way around. They try uh, to insist on preserving the natural 
and artistic heritage of the country, of preserving um, natural features, but also in the 19th century of preserving old buildings. This is the time when you get people who are really, really concerned about conserving ancient churches. They're worried not only about people going in and demolishing the churches or, you know, adding stuff new, but they're also worried about environmental degradation. And let's just think about the cultural scripts that allow this to happen. People realize that things all around them are changing and elements of their environment, the buildings around them, the skies around them, the trees and plants around them are seen as being under threat by whatever this new thing is, by factories, by coal, by new women, by whatever. But let's now start thinking of the other side of the story. This side of a story that sees the concept of pollution as something that has a much deeper history. In this perspective, the real change in the 19th century isn't that people identify human activity as having deleterious effects on the environment, but instead a shift of what that deleterious activity is. Let's start with air pollution. I started this story arguing that in the 19th century, air pollution got really bad in especially new ways. But that's a little bit of a flub, because for much of human history, air pollution has been a really big problem. It's just not been as widely dispersed a problem. Because if you live in a cold climate, you need a fire to keep warm. And even wood fire produces a ton of harmful stuff that, uh, if you breathe it in, makes you feel really uncomfortable. And before the 19th century and the development of modern chimneys, getting a chimney in a house that actually worked, that actually led to there being a nice take up of smoke and uh, also led for the heat of the fire to be able to expand throughout the house uh, was really hard. And so most families had to make a really tough choice whenever they heated their homes in winter, whenever they wanted to cook their food. Do they keep the warmth of the fire and also keep the smoke of the fire? Or do they let the warmth and the smoke of the fire fly up the chimney? Now this meant that a lot of people grew up and lived and slept in incredibly smoky environments. In the rare cases in which uh, people's lung tissue has been preserved well enough for us to look at it, biologists have said that their lungs are actually really damaged, not because of pollution outside the home, but because of pollution inside the home. And then let's think about pollution outside the home, because people before the 19th century believed that their towns and cities and areas could become polluted. The difference was is that mainly the idea was that uh, pollution came from the decay of natural substances, and that ill health was the result of this bad-smelling, you know, mist that rose out of decaying bodies and plants, something that they called miasmas, bad air. It's where we get the word malaria from. And I mean, you can see why people would think this. If you go by a rotting body, it smells bad. If you go by a swamp, which is often malarial, it smells bad and often like Dagobah is, you know, bubbling with, you know, basically earth farts. 
And this was what people thought caused a lot of epidemic disease. Not the activity of people, but instead the uh, activity of the environment itself. The solution, oddly enough, was often the burning of uh, organic compounds, the clean burning of wood, and more particularly, coal. In the 17th, 18th, and even 19th centuries, coal smoke was thought to be a kind of antidote for the bad air produced by organic decay. Uh, in the Great Plague of London, some people got piles of coal and set them on fire to drive away the bad air. More famously, uh, a lot of other people used smoking tobacco as a way to chase away the bad air around them. Um, as late as the middle of the 19th century, people with tuberculosis were encouraged to burn coal and smell the smoke because it would chase away whatever dry ickiness was causing the tuberculosis. And there's also a long history of people understanding that human activity has a deep connection with the environment. Um, farmers and pastoralists, for example, took care of their animals and their land and understood their activity not simply as growing things, but as having some kind of stewardship over the places in which they lived. We might be able to see the 18th century uh, cultures of improvement as an example of this. People didn't see human activity as something that destroyed the environment. They saw human activity as something that created the environment, that transformed the natural world, which was, you know, kind of shitty and difficult to live in, into the garden of the human world that was profitable and prosperous. This involved things like uh, doing triennial crop rotation and importing new plants and doing liming and marling where people took uh, a lot of the byproducts of burning stuff like ashes and put them into the ground to help fertilize stuff. In this perspective, what a lot of human life was, was it sought to look at God's hidden plan for the world and through the use of reason, recreate the natural environment in a way that would be better for people. We can point to dozens, if not hundreds of examples of this kind of pre-modern stewardship of the environment. Uh, a great example is uh, maintenance of tree crops in Venice or Japan or even Britain, um, people trying to keep clean and healthy, draining of fenlands. All of these things were ways that people worked to try to limit their view of pollution. What really changes, though, in the 19th century is the source of the pollution. Pollution goes from being something that humans and nature can do to something that humans alone do. It changes from it being this product of a lot of different processes to this thing that is the unintentional byproduct of industrialization itself. And I want to show my hand here about why I think that this story about the history of pollution is important. I think that one of the big tasks of historians today is to make sense of what's coming in our history. And what's coming is a time period in which uh, what we know as pollution, this uh, set of 
uh, unintended consequences from the burning of lots of fossil fuels directly affects most of what happens in society. The level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will become a causal agent on the level of democracy, nationalism, industrialization, rationalism, religion itself. But the problem with that is that we don't yet know how to tell these kinds of stories. Carbon dioxide is invisible, and it takes a really long time to build up. It's hard to tell a story about this slow buildup of an invisible thing that happens to everybody equally in a way that we're usually familiar with telling stories. If you read, for example, the undergrad essays that are written about the First or Second World War that I have to grade, you'll see that a lot of what people do is that they try to assign praise or blame on particular historical actors. World War I was caused by Germany. World War I was caused by imperialism. World War II was caused by racism. World War II was caused by the Versailles Treaty. But we can't exactly do that with climate change. It's hard to say, for example, that my great-great-great-great-grandfather was, you know, one one-hundredth millionth of a part responsible for one degree change in climate change. It's hard to say that. It's hard to assign blame. It's hard to say that uh, Watt's discovery of rotary motion steam engines uh, directly led to the current climate crisis that's coming. It's hard to say that the early 20th century exploitation of uh, uh, oil reservoirs in the Middle East can be held responsible for the current climactic crisis. The only real people to blame, if anybody needs to blame, uh, are far, far, far ahead of the end of this story. There are people who turn up in the 70s and 80s, this weird cabal of scientists and experts who serve the fossil fuel industry and act to muddy the scientific waters enough that uh, political action to halt climate change is hamstrung. That's the only real people that you can blame in this story. But that's a weird history. If we want to tell the history of climate change, we need to have some sort of handle on it. We need to make a story about it. And one way to make this story is to tell the story of the first part of this episode, of how the Industrial Revolution served as a force multiplier of humans' uh, effects on the environment. And that after it happened, people noticed and made new kinds of political formations to try to mitigate the threat. And the, you know, uh, moral of this story is that's what we should do now. That to stop climate change, we need the same kind of alliance between experts and activists to directly petition politicians in order to start to shift the story away. Of course, there's another narrative that you can uh, tell about this that I didn't really draw out, and that's that while the real change wasn't the fact that this collection of activists and experts and politicians made any good legislation, but instead that there was a new energy source, petrol and electricity and hydropower, and this is what caused the change. 
from that narrative, uh, which you can see being pushed by people like Bill Gates, what we need is not a political solution, but a technological solution. But I want to take a step back from jumping into that debate and just make the point that the current problem is a lot weirder. The current problem is not about a particular coal station blackening up a particular national icon. This story is about us as a species doing stuff that is changing our Earth as a geological entity. We're talking about things on scales that are, you know, much more massive than anything that we've ever discussed before. And this leads to a deep problem because whatever kind of solution we come up with, we're going to need a political solution to help make sense of the damage that has been caused. We're going to need some sort of story about the people who are displaced by famine and drought, about people who are killed by the forest fires, about people whose industries die because energy gets more expensive. It cannot merely be a technological solution. But this political solution will still have to deal with this strange story of who's to blame, how to tell the history of this. And to do this right, I think that historians of my generation are going to need to much more clearly articulate how we make stories that include non-humans. We need to take on animals and objects and institutions and geological processes and carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide and diseases and uh, antibiotics and uh, technology and print and all of these different factors and somehow make a story and also make a story that doesn't just make the human a effect of all of these different institutions and processes that allows the human still some kind of dignity and respect and choice and agency. We need to still be able to tell these human stories, if only for the reason that that's the kind of stories that we find interesting, but also because the human matters. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making a Historian. Uh, thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, tweet about us, share us on social media. Uh, if you're on Reddit, making a Reddit post actually has a huge effect. I can tell when uh, my stuff is shared even on a very small subreddit because downloads increase by like 10 times. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Check out the website at historian.live, and I will see you guys tomorrow when I will be talking about my problem with telling a history of time. Thanks very much for listening.